On this Saturday morning, we have, uh, we just heard from the recyclery folks, a really good bunch up there on Howard, on Polina Street, just off Howard. And we're welcoming back uh, for I don't know how many times, Flint, but you are so busy and so involved in the stuff that matters that we can't help it. We have to have you once or twice a year at No, least. no, he's a co-host. Yeah, oh, that's it. One of the many <laughs> who don't know that they are. Host. Your regular host. <laughs> so um, Flint Taylor is, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, uh, one of the founders of the People's Law Office, um, did all of the important, uh, incredibly important work on the uh, post uh the assassination of Fred Hampton uh, and Mark Clark in Chicago in 1969. That case took 20 years, maybe, to? Thir only 13. 13 years to finally, but uh, these guys uh, worked it and, and did get uh, some kind of reparations for the families, for the survivors, rather, of that raid. Um, and you're still working in that same field. Um, yes, I am. In that same vineyard. Uh, Talk to us about what, first of all, we just got uh, a lot of news about people not wanting to uh, have their kids learn about the torturing of, uh, criminal, of, of people by uh, John Burge, who is a criminal, and was, uh, is still making his pension, which drives So what are you saying? That John Burge, go ahead, tell us what that's all about, Flynn. Well, if I might, um, you've triggered a lot of... Uh, in my mind sitting here listening and I just have to say with regard to Puerto Rico yeah. that one of our main people that worked in our office for many years, Alberto Rodriguez, uh, his, he moved to Puerto Rico and he happened to be back here when the hurricane hit and uh. his family was in Puerto Rico. So we had a first-hand report of the trauma that he and his family was going through in a small town in Puerto Rico. And he just is going back tomorrow with a suitcase, two suitcases full of uh, stuff for people in his town. And so it is very important uh, to deal with whatever we can do uh, to get uh, in, um, uh, materials to on the ground there yeah. to try to save those folks from the, I mean, what they're isn't going it, through. Isn't it only money? We can we can only send money if we can't take it to a trunk full of water. Mm, to yeah, it, it is money and getting it in the hands of the people, right people rather yeah, than the Red cards Cross or with no electricity. Like Red no, Cross. No, no. <laughs> the Red Cross, as we know, that's just a, uh, just uh, that's not a good place to to give your money. Huh. Um, but you need to look at the more, you know, on-the-ground type of organizations. Yeah. Well, Flint, do you fill us in on the status of the Burge case, and one of because one of the things was that there was going to be education in the Chicago public schools about it, and I think that's what Katie was referring right, to. Right. That there's some resistance from some more conservative elements in the community. <laughs> well, uh, if some people may remember that there was a long struggle waged uh, in the streets and uh, to some degree in the courts. Uh, to try to get reparations, which was a unique concept, of course, uh, in the sense of obtaining uh, reparations. It's, it's been fought ever since the Civil War, of course, by, by uh, very courageous brothers and sisters uh, in the African-American community, but the concept was applied to the torture cases, to the scores and scores of African-American men who were tortured uh, by Burge, John Burge, and uh, uh, his men uh, on the South Side, uh, and they didn't have any legal recourse for one reason or another, primarily because the statute of limitations had 
run and they didn't have any legal case. So what happened was there was a coming together of very strong uh, political forces, uh, Black Lives Matter people, uh, BYP 100, uh, many of the, uh, uh, the Chicago Torches Justice Memorials and, and, and lawyers such as ourselves mm -hmm. to fight for reparations. And the reparations were not only money for the men who didn't have any uh, legal rec resource or recourse, uh, but rather also things such as a center on the south side uh, for counseling, uh, which has now opened up. That's uh, such an Great accomplishment. And, and a m memorial that's being worked on or, uh, for the men, uh, and not for Robert E. Lee. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Thank you. Um, and one of the other important facets, which was unique and, 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 and historic, was to have the torture cases, the torture struggle, uh, the torture reality uh, taught uh, in the Chicago public schools, uh, the 8th and 10th grades. And that uh, had been worked on by people from Chicago uh, Torture Justice and, and the, the union, uh, the, 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 the teachers, teachers union, union mm -hmm. and, and CPS, uh, to uh, have to figure out what this would look like. And of course, for the survivors of torture who are on the street uh, were a big part of that as well. And so, uh, it, it was rolled out or announced just a few weeks ago. It's supposed to start in a month or two. And not surprisingly, I suppose, that the ultra-reactionary racist fraternal order of police led the charge to say, hey, wait a minute, we want both sides taught. Now you tell me what the other side of uh, a, a pattern and practice of racist police torture is, and I'll let you teach it. But there is no, it's like there are no two sides here. That's uh, not like we're, they're going to be able to bring in a series of police officers to say, well, it never happened. Um, and so it's just a way to try to block uh, what's rightfully uh, not only uh, a, a wonderful gain uh, and victory by the, by the forces that fought for this, but an important aspect of teaching people's history. Right. I mean, it's an, it's an extension in a way of the concept of Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky and other educators who have taught people's history, people's history. rather than the man's history. You know, the, the, there's that saying that the vic to the victor goes the history. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, uh, we're trying to rewrite in the same way we fought to rewrite the history of the Fred Hampton assassination. And I mean, it took 13 years and we're still fighting that narrative struggle. Mm. That, that, that it's an assassination, uh, it's a murder, it's not a shootout, that kind of thing. Right. And with the torture struggle, it's, this is a narrative that's going to be established and taught, but we still have to fight to sustain it because those forces, the ultra-reactionary FOP, the people on the northwest side who are being egged on, who are the families of police officers are holding community meetings and saying, we don't want our kids taught that. We don't want our children knowing about police torture. We don't want our children to know about the tarnishment of the star, so to speak. So what, what are you up to now that, um, that will deal directly with that, or are you, still on, are you also working on the reparations angle as well? 
Well, personally, uh, I'm involved in a case that brings me full circle and our office full circle. Thirty years ago, we got involved in what was the seminal case of police torture in the city, which was the Andrew Wilson torture case. Andrew Wilson was brutally tortured with electric shock. He was suffocated. He had a gun put in his mouth. He was kicked and beaten. And that was because, primarily, he had been uh, charged uh, with killing two white police officers. And it was a, a tremendously notorious case in the city. There was a manhunt for five days that terrorized the entire terrorized south the entire and west south sides of community looking for him and his brother, Jackie Wilson. Well, Andrew Wilson, we, that's the case that uh, allowed us to uncover the fact that it wasn't just some crazed one-time torture, but that in fact it was a pattern and practice of over 100, 125 more than that African-American men tortured by this group of, of uh, police officers, detectives, sergeants, and of course the leader, John Burge. Well, Jackie Wilson, uh, uh, Andrew Wilson had a brother named Jackie Wilson, and he happened to be driving the car when the two officers were killed. He was convicted, he was tortured, he got a life sentence, he's been in jail now for over 35 years. He has just been granted a new hearing, so the case that I came in on that, that, that allowed us to, to expose over the decades the pattern and practice of police torture has now come around again in court, and we're planning for a hearing in front of Judge Hooks out at 26th Street to try to get Jackie Wilson out uh, on the basis that his confession was tortured. So now we are looking at uh, 30 years of evidence that we and others have developed to put into his case to say he deserves a new hearing, his confession should be thrown out of court, and he should finally be freed after all these years. We, we elected a new state's attorney a, a year or so ago, um, Kim Fox. And, right. Um, that was seen as uh, a way to, into um, some of these uh, abuses or to, to address some of these abuses, uh, particularly the race-based um, you know, inequities of the, and historic inequities in the state's attorney's office. Um, I remember back when Julie Hamus was working for uh, Richie Daly and uh, in the state's attorney's office, and everyone was called a willy. Uh, I was uh, informed every defendant was a willy. Um, mm -hmm. So the dehumanization and and the right wing stuff. I forgot where I started. Um, Talking about state's attorney. Thanks, thanks. How's she doing? Yeah, how's she doing? <laughs> thanks. Well, um, in legal terms, the jury's still out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a ma massive, um, it's a massive task. You mentioned Richie Daly. Richie Daly, of course, was state's attorney for eight or nine years, followed by Devine, then followed by Alvarez. And during that entire period of time, uh, looking specifically about police torture, they were not only aware of it, but they were actively covering it up. And Daly particularly was, we, we, we later uh, uncovered evidence that Daly was right there, knew about that Andrew Wilson case, knew he should have prosecuted Burge at that time and stopped all of this torture, but instead, of course, covered it up and did nothing. Well, that legacy of many, many years 
uh, Kim Fox has to deal with. It's a code of silence that works in the state's attorney's office the same way it works in the police department uh, and goes all the way through to the prison system. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very pernicious, racist system, and uh, we wish her luck, and we certainly uh, hope that she'll persevere, but she has a hell of a task to try to change that. Uh, Flint Taylor, I remember when the Chicago Police Department was overwhelmingly white and men. Uh, things have certainly changed since then. There are many women on the police force. There are many people of other uh, races and backgrounds on the police force. Um, yet we have the uh, Fraternal Order of the Police running the show. Uh, there used to be the African American Patrolmen's Association. And the woman leader of that, I'm blocking. Pat Hill. Pat Hill just passed away. Right. I think Renault Robinson is still around. Yeah. We see a couple of black police officers took a knee and we're getting reprimanded for that. I wondered what is the status of the police department? I mean, you must have people on the department who are friendly to your work. Uh, we certainly used to have friendly kind of left-wing cops stopping by the heartland. I don't know if you'd call them left-wing. Well, they were sort of, they, they were the just books. friendly. Yeah. No, but I knew a few more than you, Katie, of those guys. And uh, I'm just wondering if you could give us an overall view about, uh, the, the, you know, non-whites in the department, other organizations in the department, where you see that all going. Well, you're right that, that there's been uh, changes uh, in the demographics, as, the, as it were, uh, of the uh, department. But the culture hasn't really changed. The That's culture that we're talking about and, and the idea that you're not black, you're not white, you're not a woman, you're not a man, but we're blue. Mm -hmm. And that's that code of silence. And you know, people like to say, well, it's a few bad apples, that Burge is a bad apple. But in fact, it's a system. Uh, there couldn't be, unfortunately, Burge's it couldn't be the 10% the, the or the 5% that, that, that rack up uh, the predominant amount of the complaints of brutality and racism if the other 85% didn't look the other way, if they didn't come in uh, when there were disciplinary processes and look the other way and say, I didn't see that or it didn't happen. So that, that How whole do you get system, to that? Well, it, it, it's your job. I mean, some of us who go way back may remember the name of Frank Laverty. Frank Laverty was the Serpico, the, the, the man who broke the code of silence in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he came forward in a case of ours and exposed the fact that the police were keeping for decades street files. They had files where they kept the evidence that showed that a defendant might be innocent secretly away from the prosecutors and the police. And he exposed that, and as a, as a, as a result of that, mm -hmm. a, a young man we were representing who was perhaps headed for death row was exonerated because the files showed that, in fact, there was another guy who committed the crime. That was in the secret street files. Yes. What Rat Laverty, not the cops who did this, uh, were promoted, nothing happened to them, but Laverty was busted from being a detective down to watching recruits give urine samples at 11th and State, the headquarters. So that's the message. And not only that, he was physically threatened. So that, that was what happened then, and no doubt what still happens to cops who come forward. So that's why you have that silent 85%, because you might be going out to, 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 to arrest someone, and your partner's behind you, and uh, y y he might not cover you if uh, maybe you, uh, quote, ratted on them when they com committed some act of brutality.
Uh, speaking of brutality, what about uh, <clears throat> last year or recently in the news, we had a lot of news about Holman Square, where uh. apparently the police were taking people and interrogating them and holding them, et cetera. What's the current status of the Holman Square situation? Well, that's another case we're involved in, and I've just been in court recently on it. We're fighting very hard with the police department to get uh, the evidence about uh, the parameters of Holman Square. Holman Square, as you said, is a place where they were secretly taking people off the books, uh, working them to try to turn them into informants, trying to get information on drugs, on, on, on guns, on gangs. Uh, and it was, and at times there was torture and brutality going on in those secret walls. Uh, it got exposed by the Guardian newspaper a year or two ago. Uh, we filed a lawsuit on behalf of several men who were held there and ultimately were charged and spent 15 months in jail. Uh, and now we're fighting over Rom's emails. We want to see what Rom knew about this place. We're, we're, we're fighting over the, we just got information there were 254,000 emails that had the name Holman Square in it. We're trying to figure out now how to deal with all of that. Who's going to read them all? <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but, but yes, that's a, that's a problem, but it also tells you perhaps maybe they, there was something going on there beyond what, what, what Rahm and the, and the city has conceded. So as far as I know, they're still using the place, and uh, it's still something that people need to be outraged about. Flint, we're going to run out of time, uh, but uh, why don't you take this opportunity to share any thoughts that you have on cases or whatever, and tell people where they can read your writing, because you have started to write for notable progressive journals about the good work that you and the People's Law Office are doing. Well, thank you. Um, one thing that's been on my mind and I'm just putting together a piece on and perhaps uh, maybe doing some consulting work in is the Charlottesville case, or what happened in Charlottesville. And what happened in Charlottesville, people know. Uh, that, 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 that a grouping of Unite the Right uh, organizations came together uh, and uh, the rest is uh, unfortunately history in terms of the violence that happened and the fact that the police turned the other way, that they either intentionally or neglectfully were unable to handle this situation. Uh, we don't know yet what the FBI knew, but we can assume that they were uh, monitoring all these organizations. And the first thing that came to my mind, Michael and Katie, was Greensboro, 1979. Amen. I spent six months mm. in 1985 trying the Greensboro case with uh, some other wonderful lawyers. It was the same scenario, the same scenario, what, almost 40 years ago? It happened, uh, Unite the Right with the Nazis and the Klan got together and they decided they were going to attack uh, anti-Klan uh, demonstrators and they killed five of them. And when we did that case, we saw that that went back to the 50s and the 60s, to the FBI turning the other way uh, when the Klan would, would beat up and, and kill civil rights demonstrators and protesters. So there's a, there's a line of history that we need to understand here to understand Charlottesville going forward. Thank you, Flint Taylor. Thank you, Jesse. And Nora from uh, Recyclery. I, Thanks for listening. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, Morgan Lonergan, uh, Reed Himes, uh, all our missing compatriots. Nolan Chin downtown. Nolan Chin downtown. Bless your heart. Um, do the good in the world. The world needs all the good you do. All power, all power to, to the people. people. Take us out with some music. Right on. Thank you all for being here. <laughs>